I think that's the story that for me sticks in my mind that in 50 years, I would love my family to hear about. You can take tragedy and learn from it and do things differently and benefit people that come after that. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Kevin Chung. He is a graduate of West Point and Georgetown University School of Medicine. After finishing an internal medicine residency at Eisenhower Army Medical Center and fellowship in critical care medicine at Walter Reed, Dr. Chung was assigned to the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research, where he has served in the capacity of medical director of the Burn Intensive Care Unit, task area manager of clinical trials in burns and trauma, and the director of research for the ISR. His research interests include critical care, organ failure, and sepsis and currently serves as the Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Well, welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Kevin Chung on today. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks, Doug, and thanks, Wayne, for having me on. This is great. Dr. Chung, what led you to choose military medicine as your career? Really, my first calling was to the Army, believe it or not. There was a childhood friend of mine who's actually, who just actually retired after 20 years of service, Dave Bell, who was a close friend back in grade school. He had a grandfather that went to West Point and we started talking about West Point. Long story short, the first time I stepped foot on the parade field, it, I was completely taken. So that was my goal throughout you know, my years in high school. And uh, once I got into West Point and started going to college, taking courses, I pondered about what my next step was going to be in terms of combat arms. I was very interested in, in armor, so I was going to branch armor. However, king at my grades, I, I thought, well, there's another pathway where you can go into medicine after West Point. I thought, and after talking to a few of the counselors and mentors, I thought maybe I had the grades. And so I gave a medical school a whirl. And at the end of the day, I only applied to one school because I, I really said to myself, I'll apply to Georgetown early. If I don't get in, I'll go on armor. And that was the deal. So I was lucky enough to get in and how I got into military medicine. So we know that you've trained in, in critical care. And I think most people would figure critical care is super important for the military on the battlefield. But where exactly on the battlefield should a critical care ICU doc be? Well, that's a great question, Doug. The most ideal place for a critical care trained physician is probably in the role three. However, we have had many of our pro providers get deployed in role two plus sort of situations, especially in the setting of high op tempo or remote care, for example. And so we've had that. But uh, I would say the, the primary role of a critical care physician is to, to help manage the critical, critically ill patients that get funneled into the role three, the sickest of the sick, and help triage them, manage them during the short time, hopefully, that they're there in the role three and prioritize air evacuation for a stint in the ICU, providing organ support, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's the place that most of 
critically uh, critical care trained uh, physicians will be is the role three. So just for those who are listening who may not be familiar with role three, can you describe what capabilities does a role three hospital have? Right. So the role three hospital is essentially the definitive care in theater that is a full service hospital that is located in the area of operation of most of the subspecialties available to be able to take care of every issue that comes up with the patient. And that's the last sort of staging ground before the patient is evacuated out of the theater and in many cases, Germany or the United States. What would you tell someone is the biggest difference between your practice in the military or critical care doctors practice in the military and what civilian critical care doctors may do? Yeah, I think the biggest difference occurs when you're deployed uh, or in settings where you're taking care of lots of combat casualties. And the biggest difference there is uh, I have observed that we have this heightened sense of purpose and mission. And essentially all of us, and when I say all of us, I mean the nurses, the docs, the other docs, the other subspecialists, the surgeons, we're on the same mission. And we're all focused, hyper-focused on doing what needs to be done. We're all on the same page. Whereas uh, in civilian practice, there are lots of competing priorities and different types of patients coming from all over the, the region. And practice of medicine is the same, but that heightened sense of awareness is not necessarily there. Now, I, would, I will have to say that during COVID, there were a lot of similarities between the care of COVID patients and care in a deployed setting when we all had the sense of purpose. So there, was, there was an alignment there. And I felt most at that time that civilian care, especially in the ICUs, was sort of similar to what we were experiencing and what we have experienced in the deployed setting in a combat support hospital, for example. Everybody had this shared sense of purpose. We were on the same mission. So you mentioned that in deployment, especially, there's a little bit of difference in the severity of care and maybe the things that you see. How can you know or how do you prepare for that as an ICU doc in the military? How do you know you're ready? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think fellowship certainly prepares you. Every uh, intensivist or critical care trained physician goes through a variety of experiences, hopefully through, especially if you're in the military, through trauma centers. And so, so you get sort of used to the pace of trauma and critical care and maybe burns and critical care and what's expected of you as the intensivist sort of helping manage these patients in the ICU. And I think there are certain procedural skills that could potentially degrade in time, you know, over time, or you may ne not necessarily have, but after an entire fellowship, hopefully you've had many of those procedures uh, done enough of them that you, you feel comfortable. And, and the most important are establishing the airway urgently, somebody crashes and so on and so forth, chest tubes, lines. So, you know, the procedures are one thing, but at the end of the day, uh, critical care as a practice is sort of like an intellectual practice. You're helping prioritize, you have a thousand data points and you're helping prioritize and make sense of it all and the patient may have 10 different problems, but you have to really focus on the most important and impactful problems, relevant problems that 
may or may not uh, or may result in, in the patient dying. And so that's what you're focused on. And you go through in a systematic fashion those problems and, and uh, help the team really solve those problems. So it's sort of like this intellectual readiness that in contrast to maybe some of my internist colleagues who practice, let's say, GI or cardiology and during their time in a regular military treatment facility in the, in the States, they're doing that specialty. And then they have to modify their, their mindset when they go into a, into a combat hospital setting because now they're doing trauma and critical care. For intensivists, we're doing critical care where, when we're in stateside and critical care is critical care, no matter where you're, whether you're in the surgical ICU, I mean, some, some differences, medical ICU, trauma ICU, burn ICU. And so the, the principles are the same. And so there's not a lot of difference between my practice doing critical care medically in the United States and doing critical care in a combat support hospital with some very relevant, obvious differences. When you finished your critical care fellowship at Walter Reed, what was your first assignment? And did you feel like you were prepared for that first assignment? So my first assignment was to the Institute of Surgical Research, which is the U.S. Army Burn Center. When I was informed by my consultant at that time that I was headed there, I immediately scheduled a rotation at the Washington Hospital uh, Center here in in town uh, near Walter Reed, where there was a burn center. I didn't have time to do an actual rotation at the, in San Antonio. So I, I was trying to prepare myself for what I was about to experience. And so uh, I got some exposure to burn care. Um, the late Marion Jordan was a, a burn surgeon that, that worked there. And uh, Jim Jang, who's a prior Navy guy, who was a burn surgeon there. They taught me a lot. They took me under their wing. They threw me in the OR, even as an internist, doing some excision and grafting just to get the feeling of what that's like. And so I tried to prepare as best as I could. However, to answer your question, absolutely not. (laughs) Besides the basic critical care stuff that I had learned, I I essentially had to do a whole new on-the-job training fellowship in burn care because these these are some really sick patients with very unique problems that are prolonged. I mean, you're talking about average ICU stays in the ICU and a trauma ICU five, seven, if they're there 14, three weeks, that's a long ICU stay. You know, a typical burn patient who has like more than 50% burns, they'll be there for three months, you know, and and I've had patients um, during my 10 years in the burn center, I had one patient who was in the ICU for over a year. And so the mindset's a little bit different. First three years, I feel like I was a fellow <laughs> learning. And, and even towards the end there, I felt like I was still learning things. And so you're, you're, you're constantly learning new things. Yeah, I would suspect that was a great preparation for deployment. Are there any particular memorable cases that you had from your first deployment that uh, you know, just kind of ring a bell in your mind? Yeah. So add to that comment, uh, was the burn center good preparation for, for deployment? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I was a little bit um, burned out from the burn center having, you know, basically because we were getting casualty after casualty during the time, those three years, uh, I, I didn't take a lot of time off. Um, and so really in total, in weekends included, I had maybe 10 days off. I was on every day in the ICU. And so deployment for me was a little bit of a break. So let's start there. When I got to deployment, you know, you ask what, you know, if I had a memorable case, uh, absolutely. 
there was a, you know, I think it was a, he was a captain and, and it's memorable because we couldn't do anything for him. He had gotten hit. He was in a Humvee. He was in a passenger side of a Humvee and got hit by the Humvee got hit by an EFP an explosive form projectile, uh, copper drum that, that was a common weapon of our, the insurgents at that time in Iraq. So this was in Baghdad, uh, the uh, Baghdad ER, 86 cash that I was assigned to. And um, he, the, the EFP had basically taken a chunk out of his backside and there was really nothing the, the surgeons can do. Uh, it was just wide open wound with just bony surface with bone marrow oozing blood. If you can imagine that, about half of his back pelvis was gone. And we knew, all of us knew that, that this was not good and that he was unlikely to survive. And, you know, he was in the ER there and we, we had known about the injury. We're looking at it. And right before uh, we, we intubated him, he looks up at me and, you know, the ER doc was intubating and, and I was helping. Um, and, um, hey, doctor, am I going to die? And uh, it, it, that caught me off guard because in my mind, I'm thinking he's, you know, he's likely going to die. And, you know, I, I feel bad, but I, I lied to him. I said, no, no, we'll take good care of you. Right. And uh, that, that was pretty, uh, you know, that, that was a tough thing to swallow, especially when he got back to the ICU, you know, minimal damage control. There wasn't really anything surgical that, that could be fixed. Uh, he was just bleeding, oozing from his backside. And, you know, we had at that time these chitis and bandages that were foam and, and flat and you couldn't really form it into the wound, into this huge cavity. I mean, and, you know, I thought to myself, why can't we have a freaking roll of gauze that has this stuff in it and we can just pack his wound so that we can at least, you know, uh, get a handle on his bleeding, um, you know, five, six years later is combat gauze. But, um, but at that time, we really didn't have anything. We didn't have Reboa. We didn't have, you know, we weren't even doing whole blood at that point. Um, and so uh, he ended up passing away. That, that was a shocker. Um, and, you know, welcome to the cash. That was like one of my first big casualties. Um, and, and it's memorable because it was just uh, mentally tough to, to handle. So what would you consider as your best save in your military career as a critical care physician? You, you know, per personally, I, I don't like to think that I have saves. It's the team that has the save. It's the, the surgical team and the ICU nurses and, and um, the ICU team that, that helps. Uh, so it's like a team effort. Um, I wouldn't say that I've had you know, I can't just think of one save. I would have to sort of point to the losses, then what happened after we made some adjustments uh, and, and just the satisfaction you feel that you, that made a difference. So, for example, my first, the first six months in the burn center around October, uh, we had a, you know, that's when, start, you know, it, things in Iraq started ramping up in terms of combat casualties, burn casualties. And we had one incident that resulted in six burn casualties, actually eight, but six were critically ill. And they all sort of got evacuated over time. And it was before the burn CPG, uh, so burn clinical practice guidelines. And so, you know, people did, did the best they could on the ground, uh, but 
we realized when patients move, burn patients in particular, during the most critical time after injury, the first 24 hours, which is the burn, big burn recess, and they move from one echelon to another, uh, and they were like, you know, first in the role two, and then, you know, Baghdad, and then Balad at that time. So multiple handoffs with no documentation, really, of what the other, you know, team did. Uh, and then they get on the CCAT, and then they, they go to, you know, you've had five handoffs uh, and really no documentation. And so with each handoff, there was a lack of communication or uh, ability to communicate what had been done and how much fluid had been given. There's no documentation. And so it turned out all, all six of these soldiers got got uh, over-resuscitated. And by the time, so, uh, you know, uh, in terms of TBSA, 30 to 80%, those were the ranges uh, they were all young in the 20s, uh, one guy in, the, in his 30s. Uh, by the time they got to launch stool, all six of them needed decompressive laparotomies. Uh, and then, you know, uh, we're receiving them on the uh, on stateside in San Antonio. And within 24 hours, the first guy's dead. Within three weeks, all six of them died. Um, as a result of, you know, the body's just not able to handle both a severe burn and an open abdomen. And that was a big lesson for us. And, and so uh, at that time, uh, the joint trauma system was just, you know, gearing up and we're just starting to have, you know, John Holcomb and Jenkins and others just starting to have these, you know, system-wide telephone calls. At that time, it was just a telephone call, right? You know, as we were having these weekly meetings, we we're talking about these burn patients because they were uh, the most critically ill and we were just communicating to the entire system, hey, we got a problem. We need, we got a problem we need to fix. Uh, and we need to fix this soon because we're getting burn casualties uh, in real time. And so seriously, over the weekend, my colleagues and I wrote up the burn clinical practice guidelines. And uh, together with uh, a, a nursing group, uh, a few nurses from uh, Launchstool, we created the burn flow sheet. And then, you know, a week later, uh, it was pretty much disseminated everywhere. And it was dictated that everybody who's burned has to have this burn flow sheet with them. And that burn, that simple act of making sure that there's a piece of paper that goes along with the patient that just helps document how much fluid uh, the patient has received significantly changed the prevalence of abdominal compartment syndrome and other over-resuscitation morbidities. And, uh, you know, we looked at it before and after the burns, uh, uh, CPG and, and, and the flow sheet, and there was a 50% reduction in, in, in uh, abdominal compartment syndrome and death. And so as a system, I would say that's a huge win. So, you know, not a single save, but as a system that, that uh, was very rewarding just to see that impact of doing, making it intervention. First, acknowledging and, and recognizing that there's a problem, communicate, having the system to be able to communicate to everybody and everybody acknowledge that yes, we have a problem and then coming up with a solution and everybody adopting and, and like just changing the practice right away, which was, it was just very powerful. One of the first examples of uh, the impact of the joint trauma system overall. Clearly the, the op tempo has changed and, you know, mm -hmm. the severity of injuries have, have changed a little bit recently, but military physicians are still deploying today. What advice do you give to deploying physicians that they're going out the door? Yeah, so the conditions, Doug, you're, you're right, are very different now. Um, and so, uh, so you're, 
you know, I, I think there are going to be here long periods of, of boredom uh, uh, with uh, some sprinkles of action, you know, and you have to be on your game. And so, um, you know, I haven't been deployed recently. And so I can't speak to the op-tempo and that boredom. I've just heard about it. But I do know, because I've been on the receiving side of, you know, recent combat casualties, that there's we have service members who are still getting hurt. You know, we recently had a ranger in Afghanistan. This is about a year and a half ago. Had a grenade, shrapnel hit a grenade, and his entire, I mean, hip just, you know, went away. A big, huge shark bite right in his right hip. Fortunately, you know, he, he had his buddies give blood because there was a ranger uh, walking blood bank. He had cold stored blood. He had Reboa uh, and the ECMO team deployed, picked him up, put him on renal replacement therapy on the plane across the Atlantic. Huge, huge success. And everybody heard about it and we all celebrated collectively. And so there, there's still casualties. And so you have to be prepared for that. And so, uh, I, you know, my biggest advice like any, I think this is a common piece of advice, not unique to me, um, would be talk to the people that are there now in the job that you're about to do, or maybe even a couple of rotations before. What are they ex experiencing and what you know advice would they have for you? Because I think that's probably the best advice you're going to get um, from the, the people that you're relieving. And if you're going to get deployed and you're not talking to the people that that are the person that you're replacing, that's, that's wrong. You, you gotta be talking to them like months in advance um, because they, they have the, the latest information, the most accurate information of, uh, of what you're gonna experience, no matter what specialty, I think. What would you say is your favorite story to tell about a non-clinical story or experience you had when you were on a deployment? When, when I was in Baghdad in 2008, there was a period of time uh, where we were just getting bombarded by Sadr City. Uh, so we were just indirect fire raining down on us. I think something on the order of 400 rockets and, and you, know, um, you know, mortars landing in a five mile radius. And so during that time, about a good three weeks of continuous every day just getting bombarded. Uh, we were getting casualty after casualty after casualty, and we were just busy as you can be in, in a combat support hospital with multiple mass casualty events, many mass casualty events. And we just did not, you know, prior to that, we were going to the DFAC every day, the dining facility every day, and we were just living the life of deployment, you know, going to the dining facility and during our breaks and having a nice hot meal. Uh, but during those three weeks, no hot meal. I mean, we're practically eating, you know, uh, some people would go on a run and they bring some cold sandwiches and pretty much for the entire three week period, no hot meal. So during the tail end of that, that three week period, my, one of my battle buddies and I, Booker King, we're like looking at each other. We're like, we need a hot meal. <laughs> so, but you know, there are very short, brief periods of all clear. Most of the time it's take, take cover, take cover, you know, Everyone take cover. And so you, you had to like, you had to find that period when it was an all clear and run to the DFAC. And, and you know, the DFAC was from the hospital in, in Baghdad it was about, uh, I'd say, a 300 meter walk. And so it's a little bit of a run. And so we're like, okay, 
I don't care. We're today we're getting a hot meal. We had a little bit of a break in between casualties. And so we put our Kevlar on vest and we're all, you know, the heavy Kevlar. And we're getting ready and we're waiting at the door for the all clear so that we can make a run for it. And so uh, finally, we're, we're waiting for about five minutes. We hear the all clear. We start sprinting and Booker and I are running, running, running. And then we're about halfway through. And all of a sudden we hear incoming, incoming, stay cover. Like, oh my gosh. And so I, I turn on the jets and I'm like, you know, speedy Gonzalez, get to the, get to the defect. And as you know, and, and may remember, uh, or many of many people know the defect is well protected because they have these, you know, double shelters and, and huge roof and it's highly fortified. So even if you had a direct hit on the defect, you're, you're safe. So it's like the defect is a safe zone. So, so I finally made it to the defect. And I look back and I don't see Booker. I'm like, what the heck happened to Booker? And uh, it turns out that us, one of the first sergeants, as the first sergeant of our unit, had seen us running to the, making a run for it. And when he heard, and he was, I think, going to the defect himself, when he heard incoming, he pulled Booker into a bunker. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was uh, not all clear for at least an hour. And I'm sitting there in the defect just eating double portions of this hot meal, uh, lasagna, I think. And I was just completely stuffed. And I, you know, I'm calling Booker, hey, are you okay? And he's sitting there in the bunker and we're communicating. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And the defect was about to close and they were about to close up shop. And when we got the all clear, so I brought him this hot plate of food and um, he says it was a pretty good meal. Uh, but he didn't get to that defect, unfortunately. It wasn't, it wasn't as hot as it could be. Uh, so that was pretty memorable. We tell that story every time we get together and have a good laugh. Right now, we're looking at you in Zoom, and, and your background says Uniform Services, University of Health Sciences. So tell us a little bit about why does the military have a medical school, and what do you guys do there? Yeah, uh, thanks, Doug. You know, you, you, the Uniform Services University is unique in that we're a, a credit, fully accredited uh, university, uh, medical school, uh, that also has, you know, I would say second primary mission of training uh, military providers and military docs. And so uh, our focus from day one is to create uh, military physicians physicians who are focused, hyper-focused on the mission of the military. And, and so USU graduates upon graduation and training have a mindset where they know they're going to serve. They know they're going to be on active duty. They know they're going to deploy. They know they're, they're going to, you know, uh, be in an environment that, that is supporting the, the overall military mission. And so it's a mindset from day one that prepares them for the inevitable the deployment and the, the assignments in, in a variety of uh, locations around the world. And so that's what's unique about it. It's the common mission. Uh, and so, yes, you could probably take a bunch of civilian docs and make them military, which we have that system with uh, the health professions uh, scholarship. But, you know, taking having a school like this where everybody has this common hyper-acute focus on what they're going to be doing creates this foundation that really elevates the level of care in the military. And you have physicians that are ready to go, that have the mindset that you don't need to train up if a war happens. And so that's why 
that Neo Foreign Services or USU exists. To, to, to have that foundation of providers uh, who are at a moment's notice ready to go to war whenever the nation calls upon them to do so. And I think that's what's unique about it. And that's why we exist. And I think that's why we're going to continue to exist because people have recognized the importance of that. I, I hope uh, more people learn about USU because it's, you know, it's one of those things where not a lot of people know about the military medical school. And, and when they hear about it, they're like, what, what? Um, those within the medical community know, but we need to do a better job as a community to, to promote and market ourselves and uh, sort of inform the public what USU is all about. You have a significant amount of clinical research that you've done. What would you say is your most impactful research you've done for military medicine and for the medical community as a whole? So I think I've focused a lot on organ failure in my, in my time. Um, and what I've realized is that once you have organ failure, it may be too late because you've already had cell death and it's hard to recover from cell death and organ death. And so uh, I focused a lot of effort recently on preventing organ failure. And one of the programs that I've been involved with that's still active right now has its roots in, in DARPA. And DARPA funded a program called Dialysis-like Therapeutics. And this program uh, was calling for academics and industry to create a medical countermeasure against unknown pathogens. And at that time, it was really targeting uh, pan-resistant organisms in the bloodstream. And uh, in a, through a non-pharmacologic, extracorporeal fashion, uh, removing these pathogens from the blood, no matter what they were. Now, it sounds kind of crazy, uh, but that's what DARPA does. It, they they uh, have these crazy visions and um, somehow things happen. And so, uh, it, you know, it turns out we, we had a couple of, this is a $150 million program that started about 10 years ago. We had a couple of uh, products that, that uh, made it through sort of the regulatory pathway and just about ready for first in human or uh, in, in the case of uh, this one technology, uh, you know, sort of going through uh, the pathway to get FDA approval. They had already gotten European approval when COVID hit. And when COVID uh, came to our shores, uh, uh, you know, I asked them, hey, can, can we use this to this remove, remove a virus and SARS-CoV-2? We knew it removed virus, uh, but they were like, oh, let, let us check in about a week they had the answer, yes, it does remove SARS-CoV-2. The next question was, does SARS-CoV-2 circulate in the blood? The answer is yes, uh, long story short. And so uh, we started treating a bunch of patients. And right now we have this program called Purify, which is first documenting the patients that have been treated during, there was an uh, emergency use authorization for this device to document and, and sort of look at the survival rates and then that's going to translate into, a, we're turning that into a randomized control trial that we just, actually, as of today, we got a, a, an IDE approved investigational device exemption so that we can now launch this study, randomized control trial feasibility study in uh, sepsis or septic shock. So it could be a trauma patient, medical patient, not COVID, septic shock. If they have bacteria in the blood, we're going to randomize them to therapy, remove the pathogens versus not do standard care and see what happens. I would say, you know, there've been a, a lot of 
advances over the last decade or so, uh, I would say this has the biggest potential because if uh, this shows benefit, it's going to be game changing. And there are a couple of technologies. It's not just one that that we're looking at to, to evaluate and we'll see what happens. So that's real exciting. If you see, if you run into, let's say, a 20-year-old in college who's interested in medicine, you know, starting to think about applying to medical school and wants your advice about military medicine, what do you tell them? So, Doug, I, the first thing I would say is contact me <laughs> because I, you know, I, me, me, I'm maybe, you know, I'm 20 plus years, yeah, 22 years uh, from graduating med school. So I'm a little further away, but what I can do is connect them to uh, the people uh, that could be very helpful in, in, in helping them sort of talk things through uh, closer to, you know, applying to medical school, maybe current medical students or residents if they're interested in a certain uh, specialty. That's one of the things that I that brings me the most joy is connecting the current generation of military providers with those that are just starting out. Uh, how wonderful is that when you make a a match and you you establish that connection that results in a long-term mentor-mentee relationship. I, I love I love that about this job. And so that's what I would say. Contact me and I will, or, you know, contact somebody in military medicine who seems to be enjoying what they're doing and are sticking around and talk to them. You know, most military providers are very, very willing to talk to folks that are interested in military medicine. I found, and they will stop everything that, that they're doing to talk to somebody who, who has questions. And so I've never had anybody say no. And, and so uh, that, that would be my advice. Just talk to a bunch of people, different perspectives, talk to people that have, you know, graduated from USU or currently going to USU, talk to people that are uh, currently in HPSP or have done HPSP and, and you'll get uh, really a good 360 degree uh, look of um, what it's all about. And then if you can uh, try to uh, shadow somebody in a military hospital and talk to them one-on-one. And I think that's, that's when, where you would get the, you know, uh, the real information. What is one war story from your military career that you would want your family to hear about if they listen to this in 50, 60 years? <sighs> Boy, the most memorable story, I would have to say, is uh, not one with the best outcome, um, but, um, but it, an example, it's, it's an example of where we were. And as a result of his death, it resulted in huge advances that, re, that has had tremendous impact down the line. Um, you know, there, there was a patient that, uh, I, that that story I told about the six uh, burns that ended up dying, the last patient of the six, um, that third week, I can say his name because it's public information, Darren Howe. And he, um, he had a 30% burn and abdominal compartment syndrome. And um, he ended up dying uh, and he had a pretty bad renal failure. And the kidneys had shut down. And at that time, we, we did not have the type of kidney support that could be provided uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. We only had the ability to do intermittent, which was, he was so sick that he could not tolerate intermittent. And so long story short, he ended up passing away. It was tragic. 
but because of him, that inspired this long run and it motivated us to, to establish a program. And we established it, it resulted in, in a number of scores of saves and it helped save so many people that are alive today as a result of that death inspiring this whole revolution of activity. I think that's the story that for me sticks in my mind that in 50 years, I would love my family to hear about. You can take tragedy and learn from it and do things differently and benefit people that come after that. Kevin, you've talked a lot about innovation and and learning new things and applying that. What changes do you see in military medicine that will improve battlefield care in the next 10 to 20 years? I think there are there have been a ton of advancements, as you know, over the last 20 years that that ranger I was talking about, he would not be alive today without those innovations. I think from a technological standpoint, it's a non-medical innovation that I think will have the biggest impact. And, and you know, I believe it's, it's you know, broadband, dedicated medical broadband is what's going to make the biggest impact. The ability to communicate when somebody's out in the middle of nowhere and being able to get camo, real-time camo with somebody, an expert. So there are elements of telemedicine sprinkled there, but if you're able to do a, you know, like we're doing now, a two-way video communication, technology is gonna be there in 10 years to be able to do this, what we're doing now in the most remote regions in the, in the, around the globe. And so uh, I, I believe that can have a tremendous impact because you're now taking potentially expertise to the battlefield uh, where it would not otherwise be. Um, and so I believe that's that has the, the biggest potential for impact. Well, Dr. Chung, I, I just want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us on War Docs. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. It was great. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.